0: Welcome to Lobster Brain. Lobsters fight and when they win, it changes the neurochemicals in their brain and in turn, the hierarchy of the lobster community. Each success makes the lobster more of a leader and it becomes a top lobster. But why are we telling you this?
1: Because in this podcast, you'll learn about how success can influence your mindset, strengthen your beliefs and change your thought processes you'll also discover that it's both success and hard knocks that creates leaders, or as we'll be calling them, Top Lobsters.
0: I'm Lisa Morton.
1: And I'm Danny Donickey.
0: And in this episode of Lobster Brain, you're going to hear from Phil Neville.
1: Phil was an accomplished player at Manchester United and England and I got to know him at Everton when he came as a player and he quickly became captain of Everton at a young age. And as everyone knows, Phil comes from a family of top lobsters. His brother also played for Manchester United and his twin sister, Tracy, was a great netball player and then went on to manage the national team.
0: So when we spoke to Phil, it was during the World Cup and he was at home in Miami We discussed loads of things that I probably didn't think we would expect talking about with Phil. And what really came out for me was his his amazing take on leadership and also how much empathy he brings to the teams that he works with.
1: It's funny you bring out those two points, Lisa, because I've had a message this week from the player at Everton who Phil roomed with when he first came. He's called Gary Naismith and he was a Scotland international. And what he said about Phil was that Uh, The standards and professionalism that he brought were incredible. But the main thing that kind of stuck with him about Phil was, you know, he'd come from Manchester United and he'd done all these great things, won all these trophies. But he came to Everton with a point to prove and he never thought he was better than anybody else at Everton. And I think that draws out what you're saying about the leadership and also the down-to-earthness and empathy of him as a person.
0: Yeah, so he talks about... Being a soldier at United and then very quickly becoming a general at Everton and although he wanted to be the general, I don't think he felt it was quite ready for him to take up that role. Just He wanted to earn his stripes more, didn't he, I think, which is is again a sign of that humility.
1: Yeah, it's just typical of Phil, isn't it? And, And I think, you know, coming from the family that he comes from, work ethic is the big kind of gold standard that they all adhere to. And I think with that brought a lot of pressure that he goes on to speak about, you know, when he came into Everton and, and he might have been perceived as teacher's pet, David Moyes' son and all of that. I think you're going to hear his sense of humour coming out as well. He's usually on his best behaviour when he does podcasts, but you'll, you'll get a little glimpse into his sense of humour.
0: So as you've heard, Danny and Phil are great mates and we kicked off the interview by getting an insight into how they first met
1: so I was working at Everton. I'd been there a few years. And we signed this player for Man United, Phil Neville. And he came in. And one of the first things he asked was, is there a yoga teacher here? And luckily, I was like big, big on yoga. And I was the yoga teacher. I think he was probably hoping for something a bit different than me. But I was what he got. But I just want to start, Philip, by asking you... So you came for Man United. And you were you know, you grew up there, it was part of your childhood, your, your upbringing, and you came to Everton. Yeah. And, and when you came to Everton, you were kind of thrown in. And this podcast is called Lobster Brain. It's about the hierarchy of lobsters and humans. And you were kind of thrown yeah. right in at Everton and you were like the leader and you were the, made the captain straight away. How, how was that for yeah. you? Well,
2: it was a surprise, really, because I'd I'd never... I think I'd only been captain in the youth teams at Manchester United. And obviously, when I got to the first team, my role wasn't one of a leader. My role was more of a support. Uh, You know, there was generals in the team, and I was more of a soldier. So I think when I went to Everton, I I didn't expect the platform that I did that I was given by David Moyes so soon. Uh, I knew that I had to set the uh, standard in terms of, you know, my my professionalism and the standards that I'd learned at Manchester United, those were the things that he communicated to me, you know, and and I'd never even thought when I signed for Everton that, that captaincy was one of the things that I would develop into. Uh, and then very quickly early on, the conversations with David Moyes changed from the conversations probably that I used to have with Sir Alex Ferguson from one of a support role to one where I had massive influence uh, both on the manager and on the team. And, I didn't change the way that I approached driving into work. I I wanted to be professional. I wanted to get there early. I wanted to set the tone in terms of what I believe elite performance was all about. But to be given the captaincy, I think it was game four. I've got to say, I, I I, I didn't enjoy it and I didn't expect it and I didn't really want it that soon. I wanted to earn the trust of my teammates first. That was the most important part for me because I still felt there was that bit of, when you join a new team, you have to earn the respect. You have to earn your stripes. It was that old school. And when I got it after game four, there was a lot of people looking at me in the dressing room in, in, in a way that I'd never been looked at by teammates before. And that was one of, you know, teacher's pet, David Moyes' little boy. And, and I didn't enjoy it, but I knew I had to be strong because I had the faith in the backing of the manager because he wanted to change the culture at the football club. And I went into a football club that had just finished fourth in the Premier League. So everybody there thought everything was rosy, but David Moyes with his vision and his his incredible managerial ability knew that he had to keep evolving the club and changing the culture of the club. And he saw me as a vital cog in that, but I didn't want the captaincy. I wanted to earn the stripes very quickly. And and what happened was I had to be, I had to really ride a bit of a storm for probably six to eight months of people doubting me, people challenging me, people resentful towards me. But I felt as if that was probably the making of me in that football club.
0: And how comfortable were you with that? Because as that navigating that journey of being liked and want to be liked, being accepted, as you said, into a new club, and then having to take on that leadership role, when you say you you didn't feel like you'd you'd earned your stripes. Were you expecting that lack of comfort as soon as you started a new club?
2: No, I wasn't. And and I think what I did, what I learned very quickly about going from a soldier to a general is that generals or leaders can't always be liked. I, I was at Manchester United and I felt as if I was liked by everyone. And I went to Everton and all of a sudden, you know, when I was put into the leadership role, I, met, I realized very quickly that in, in a leadership role, you can't always be everyone's best friend. You can't always do what everyone wants you to do. You've got to do the right thing for the team. And sometimes that goes against other other players, other staff, other other employees' uh, visions of what they believe, and so so that is that was the biggest change for me. Someone that you know, I'm a sociable type of guy who likes a laugh and a joke, but all of a sudden, I had to I had to sort of like create a distance between myself and those that were resistant towards me, and I had to be really strong that. Not everyone will like me because of of what I was doing, but I was doing what I was doing because I wanted to help the manager create a vision and a way forward for the football club. So, so what I what I learned was that I I wasn't going to be liked by everybody, and that I had to align myself with players and people in the football club that had similar traits to me. And that's what I found. So, what happened was it was almost like the Pied Piper effect over the the next eight to twelve months is that. I almost, I say almost, I almost felt as if people were jumping on board with the new culture along the journey. And there was those that were resentful at the start that all of a sudden, three, four months later, realized that maybe I wasn't the teacher's pet. Maybe I wasn't there just to sort of like be David Moyes' little boy. Maybe they saw me as someone that actually was here to help the team. And then and by the end of the 12 months or by the end of my first season, I felt as if people understood me more as a leader rather than me as a person, if you know what I mean. You definitely were a teacher's pet
1: though, weren't you? <laughs> For around 12 <laughs> years. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, what, uh, you speak about culture and how there was a culture change. What, what, what's important about culture to you and, and what have you learned over the years and, and, and how are you using that now
2: as a manager? Yeah, well, I, I felt, I mean, there's a great culture at Everton and that goes, that went back 30, 40 years. And the culture at Everton that I've witnessed was the people. The people inside the club was was a massive part of, of the culture. You know, we were a working class, blue collar type type club who who demanded certain qualities from, from everybody that worked there, not just the players, everybody that worked there. Hardworking, respectful, uh, would fight would fight for everything to get success, would respect the fans, would respect the culture, would respect the people. So, so for me, uh, I, I, I didn't really, when you're a footballer, you don't really think about things like culture and vision and philosophies. And then when you stop playing and you, you then start thinking about management, I learned very quickly about what culture was all about because I looked back on my career and, and started to jot down The feelings that I had, the feelings that I had at each moment of my career and each team that I was involved in. And when I got the, when I got the lioness job, they had the most incredible, incredible culture. And I learned so I learned so much from their culture. And I added things on top of their culture that, that that were really important as well. And really, when you think about football management, the football side, the systems, the tactics are really down on the list in terms of what's really important, and I, I feel as if that's probably in business as well. Is that you know the spirit, the togetherness, that the connection with people, uh, the people that you employ in terms of the recruitment are massively, massively important. And we went to a World Cup with the lionesses, and for maybe eight to twelve months or not, but definitely for twelve months, but about six to eight camps before that. We, we worked solely on the togetherness and the culture within the camps that people enjoyed coming to camps. We, we, we created or we wanted the right people in the camps, the right staff in the camps because you was away for 50 days in a World Cup and you needed certain people within that that would create an atmosphere of, and we had this big thing is with the Lionesses that we wanted to have fun, and but more important, we wanted to create memories, memories that would last us for a lifetime. So within every training session, Within every day, within every camp, we said, right, what memories are we gonna create in this camp to create the fun and enjoyment that, which would then help us play well and and be successful? And and then I came to into Miami and I sort of like took on a job with a culture that, that a club didn't have a culture. The club, you know, it was new, it was 12 months old, it was still trying to create a culture. And what had happened was they'd spent an awful and obscene amount of money on just gathering people into the football club that they thought was going to be successful. But what they forgot was, is that it was all about the people, the people inside the club and the people inside the team. So after 12 months of, of real in-house fighting and trying to create a culture, I got rid of 19 players and, and the recruitment strategy took six months. And the only thing that we recruited was the person and the character, not the player. We, we knew about the player's ability, but we sometimes took lesser, lesser players' abilities, but people that would was hungry, was at the right age, that had the right family background or had the right family story. And more importantly, they were fantastic people. And I've got to say, I probably just had the best, the best season in terms of uh, working with a set of people that were just fantastic, that never gave up, that were that created a spirit that took us into a playoff position. And really there was other teams in the league that had more ability that spent more money. But the thing that you can't buy is the people with inside the club. And and, and I, I feel as if that is a good lesson for everyone in and outside of football as well.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I love the fact that you're talking about how you can bring people together by creating those memories. We've got Mo Gowda on the podcast and he says, you know, you don't count your life in years, you count them in experiences. So Mm. to help to create those experiences helps knit together the people within a certain culture, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, and people say, oh, it was just, but we created a memory, we created a bit of fun and that helped the team gel and that, that helps us win on the field 100%. So a lot of people,
1: when they're young, obviously want to be footballers or, or or whatever. And there's an idea, you know, when you see see all these players playing, earning all the money, doing something that they love, that it's like the dream life, but it's not always yeah. the case.
2: How was it for you when you were a footballer? Well, it is a dream. I mean, it is a dream life because when, and that's the way you should really always think about it, even in the bad times. And that I was lucky that, you know, I, I had some real difficult moments in my career and, and there are, there were moments when it was a real struggle. It was brutal. Uh, you know, you, you, had to, you had to really dig really deep to try and find that bit of enjoyment. But I was lucky that I had a real stability behind me with my family and stuff that when I got really low and when I got to the point of disappointments and, you know, uh, I never forget, my dad used to always, always go back to, you, you've got the best job in the world. This is what you've always wanted to do. Just try, and enjoy the, just try and enjoy the job that you're doing. You get up every day to go to work, to do something that you've always dreamed of. Never take that for granted. And uh, I always fell back on that at the tough times, the tough moments, the moments when you doubt yourself, the moments when you lose confidence, the moments when you lose belief in everything that you're doing. And everybody's gone through that, the best players and to, to, to the players that have not played at the top level. Have all gone through incredibly tough mental moments in their career where where you have those self doubts and insecurities and and you know but I feel as if those are the moments that really make you as a person really make you and, and and when you get to sort of like when when I get to my age now and you fall back on those moments and you fall back on those moments of how you handled those moments how you came through and and what experience tells you is that it will change you will come out of that you know you will get your confidence back you will get your belief back the the bad run of fall will turn for you uh and you know my, my son my my son wants to be a footballer he's 19 20 now and he has those moments and what i always say to say to him is keep working hard you it'll turn for you. you keep believing in yourself and switch off you know don't overthink things and you know it's it's tough and i think it's getting even tougher now for a professional footballer, people say, "Oh, the the young, the young brigade nowadays have got it easy." No, that they, they've got it tougher because the scrutiny, and the expectation on everybody in life now is far greater because of because of the way that social media works and and the, the media work and and, and life is.
1: Alisa, uh, you you know Phil's brother Gary quite well, and I'm just wondering. I don't know him so well, but. I've known Phil for a long time. What What are you thinking about the differences between Gary and Phil?
0: So for me, it's that obviously that discipline that you've had, the three of you. Obviously, three incredibly successful people within one family. I had the privilege of meeting your late dad very early on in my career, and I was struck then by his clear ambition, but also his discipline. We were actually doing some work for a, a client of ours, and and I won't go into detail, but you and and Gary were involved in that, and. His management of us handling that story was you know, so detailed. So I, I think for me, the way you all conduct yourself and every single one of you, uh, any conversations around any of you, what comes up is your work ethic. And so what strikes me is that it's those tiny things, the mundane things, it's all the small things you've got to do on a daily basis for years and years and years that creates that success. You know, it's not come because you've had a break of some kind or you happen to know somebody who's given you the opportunity. So rather than differences, I kind of see that similarity. And for me, you know, is that down to how your family were? Did they push you? Those ethics, are they their ethics?
2: Well, I think think when people ask me about uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, you know, like, like, what was he like? What was he like? And every coach is the first question they always ask me. You know, what was Alex Ferguson like? What was Roy Keane like? What was Cristiano Ronaldo like? And I went on a podcast. It was a, the high-performance podcast. And really, like, it is really... I think the simplicity is the, is the one thing I always say. Like, what was Sir Alex Ferguson like? He just did the simple things. Absolutely, incredibly, every single day of his... Uh, every single day every single minute of his life. And 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 that's really what our family passed down to us. Or my mum my and dad drove into us is that, you know, every day you have a choice. Every day you have a choice. My grandparents owned a corner shop. They got up at four, five o'clock every day. They saw it as the best part of the day which then got passed down to my mum, who was an early riser, which then got passed down to, my, to us that said, look, get up earlier, Sunday mornings, we were never really allowed to lie in because it was like wasting time in your life being in bed when you could be out there enjoying it. And so when people talk about the elite performance, you say, well, what is elite performance? I think it's doing the basics every single minute of every single day really well. And that's really all that Sir Bergson asked us to do. Work hard, run hard, fight for each other, train hard every single day, be polite, wear the right clothes, be respectful. You know, the basics of life is really what Sir Alex Bergson uh, drove into us. And uh, I say, when I, I read something about uh, an employee that Gary employs the other day, and, and she wrote on Twitter a thread of what she'd learned the last 12 months working at Gary's company. And it was just doing the basics every single day, but also the way that you speak to people, the way that you are with people, the way that you recruit—you know—and and I feel as if it's sort of like when I've had tough moments in management or in my life, I, re- I revert back to the basics of, you know, I'm going through a tough time. The results aren't going well for me. I'm I feel as if I'm struggling a little bit to to get in headway to where I want to go. Well let's just get up early, let's work hard, let's just do the basics every single day really well. And the basics for me is when I go into work or is is when I go into work, I make sure I try and speak to every employee. During those tough times, I speak to every employee with the same enthusiasm from, from the, my sporting director, who's my boss, to, to the guy that does the massage, to the, to the girl that works in the kit room. I try and make sure I speak to every single person during the week. I, I have a chart in my office about, who I connected with during that week to make sure that they feel valued, to make sure that they feel as if they're part of my team. And do you know what? I think, I think that makes sure that when the going does get tough, that they will keep fighting with you. They'll keep on the bus with you. And there's times along the journey when some people don't. And it's that time when you've got to probably get those people off the bus and bring people on that fit your values. And- You know, I think simplicity is the biggest thing. I I never try and overcomplicate my career, my life. I try to keep things as basic and as simple as possible, but try and do them to the absolute maximum. And I feel as if the the great people that I've worked with have all done that, have all done that really well. Cristiano Ronaldo, when people talk to me about his greatness, his greatness is is that he he does the absolute simple things better than everybody else. And I feel as if that is what I try and teach my own children and, and, and the academy kids that into Miami, when they come in, they all think it's, they all think it's money, the cars. No, no, it's just hard work, you know, and, and life is hard sometimes, you know.
1: You're quite busy, aren't you? Everyone, You're known as busy. I think you're busy too, aren't yeah. you? Your brother's busy one. But, yeah. you know, I remember <laughs> you, we were speaking about that and how, if we had a game on a Saturday, your week would start on maybe a Monday. You had to do certain things Monday, certain things Tuesday. And the whole week was yeah. like that. And you you were kind of yeah. saying that you wished in a way that you could be a little bit more free and a little bit more
2: relaxed about it. Yeah, that's that's my challenge now. That's been my biggest challenge in all my life. And And I've got to say, when I look at my brother, And my sister i worry like mad about my brother you know about his health because he is literally so driven every single minute of every day and i think a lot of that i think a lot of it is that probably the fear of failure drives us on even more when really when i look at him i sometimes think just slow down enjoy your life go on holiday spend more time with your children and you know i think it's something that i always whenever i speak to him i always try and say to him just relax a little bit more That's exactly how I am, you know. We're in the off season at this moment in time, and I'm going into work every single day for four or five hours. When, and I'm trying to, I'm looking at drawings and systems and players, and and sometimes I wish I just had that ability to switch off, to uh, disconnect, and be intentional about it. But I find it really difficult. I find it so difficult, and I've tried. I give up. Sometimes I give up trying to switch off because I think it makes me even worse. Uh my 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 wife's family's out here at this moment in time and you know I'd I block this period off for like four or five days. I'm gonna turn my phone off, I'm gonna disconnect from the football and I've watched every World Cup game, I've been to work every single day, and I've just been like a I've just been like a ship in the night, really. I'm I've dropped in and out of the family meals and stuff and and the nice things and I feel as if sort of like my brother's company's called Relentless and, and that's always been our motto is that be ahead of the rest be ahead of the pack all the time and if you stand still people will overtake you and i think it's that fear of people overtaking you and be better than you that keeps driving driving me forward and i've give up trying to be relaxed in a way daniel which is quite funny you know <laughs> it's sad it's not funny i cr- it reminds me no, of uh... you know what? We play games on a Saturday and we have a game the following Saturday. And literally 30 minutes after we've all left the game, I'm texting my assistant, the team for the week after, and the training for, and he he just, he was an American guy, brilliant, brilliant person. And he just says, calm that down, will you? And I'm like, my mind's running at 100 miles an hour. And my, my analysis who I brought from, my analysis person who I brought from England, he now understands me, he now understands me, and, and he's trying to educate people around me what I'm like in terms of the fast pace. And he, he's the first one that will always reply and say, yeah, I agree with that, let's speak about that one day. And that's his way of saying, Phil, just leave me alone on Sunday type thing, you know what I mean?
1: A lot of what you're saying, Phil, reminds me of what Tim Howard has told me and Lisa already about surrounding surrounding yourself with the right people in life.
0: Exactly, yeah, yeah. And everybody that we speak to for this podcast you know highly successful people they get to a certain point of success but then they're never happy with that particular level of success so they want to go again so how do you define it i mean are you ever going to get to a point in your career your life and you go okay i've done
2: it now and i can chill for a bit or is, no. are you always
0: going to be driving for the next thing yeah yeah
2: it's i think it's i'm never going to be happy and I, I think we've had these conversations Danny at everton about enjoying the moment a little bit more than what I used to, enjoying victories, enjoying trophies, enjoying your success a little bit more than what you should. But we were never allowed at Manchester United to have that period where you could celebrate for four or five weeks. It, it, was, it was a minute, 10 minutes after a game, and then you were thinking about the next season, the next match, the next victory. So I think that mentality of, of being able to enjoy your success probably will never come fully. You know, there's times I look back on my career now and I, and I think, oh, wow, I had some incredible moments, but I don't particularly like looking back on my career or looking back at certain events. I use them, I put them in the memory bank. My greatest moments, you know, somebody had a go at me when I was a Lioness manager, when I said, oh, this is the best job I've ever had. This is my best moments of my career. And it felt like that at that moment. So people said, well, you played for Manchester United. And, I, and I'd forgot what it felt like to play for Manchester United because really that period of my life had gone. And the period with the Lionesses were the greatest. Now we're into Miami. I think this is the best period of my life. The the success that we're having at the club, the work that we're doing, is far greater than anything I've ever done. And people say, well, well, you said that about the Lionesses. Well, yeah, at the time, that was my greatest moment. But but the, the bus is moving forward really fast. So...
0: But that's about being in the moment, isn't it? And really kind of digging into and feeling whatever challenges in front of you now, but what would you say you've had to sacrifice for this level of success? I mean, people we speak to, there's always a sacrifice along the way.
2: Yeah. I mean, I mean, family's definitely one, family's definitely one that suffer and that you have to sacrifice. And, And I'm incredibly lucky that I've got a wife that's followed me around the world that's watched every single game that I played, that's watched every single game that I've managed. So she, she sacrificed her career. You know, when, when we had children, she gave up her own career. She's an incredibly talented person. To be that, that my right arm, to be my support, to be the guy that I, I, I laugh, I cry, I celebrate with. And, you know, there's times when I've, I've not seen my children grow up for, for large periods. There's times when I've missed school football games, Isabella growing up, the the struggles that she's had in her life. She's she has physio for the first fifteen years of her life every single day, nearly, and I missed ninety eight percent of those appointments. And and not once, not once, has she ever challenged or said, uh, "Why was you not there for them?" Because she was, you know, she was well supported by our family. You know, we've always had family support for all our children. So, the family is the biggest one. But well, I, think, I think I come from a family that, that rather, than, rather than see it as a sacrifice, they saw it as, as not their job, but the, it, they saw it as their enjoyment to support whatever we wanted to do. I don't think I've ever played. I never played a game where I didn't have somebody in the crowd to wave to before the game. That was one thing that, that my, my parents were very strong at any game from the age of eight to the, to, to the last game of my career. We always had somebody in the crowd from a family that that we could wave to and blow a kiss to at the end of the game. And and I felt that was really important. And my wife's done an incredible job now of of being that person for our children. So they always had that support. I don't see it as a a massive sacrifice because it's, it's, I feel as if sacrifice is something you do when you don't want to do it. I saw it as my job, my role is what I wanted to do. So I saw it as part of my life, and 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 I'm lucky that my wife saw it as part of her life as well, and and that's that was real lucky.
0: Phil, you mentioned earlier about focusing on getting the basics right to get you through the hard times. So, what have been some of the hardest times in your life?
2: Yeah, well, I think I mentioned the one at Everton when I joined Everton. That that was that was a big change for me in my life. I had I had 18 years at Manchester United, and the next one was. Uh, I suppose when my daughter was born and, and for the first three much for the first six months, we didn't know that she had cerebral palsy for the first six months, everything was rosy. We, we had this beautiful little girl. It was everything that we ever wanted. And, and from about a month into her, into her life, my wife, and she was born, she was born real premature. And we stayed in the hospital with her for eight weeks. uh, but for the first month or two my wife said something's not right she's not progressing you know a pinching her, her eating you know she just wasn't she just didn't follow the same path as what harvey did and and i just kept saying no she, she's she's fine she's just because of her premature and she's going to take her time and stuff up like this and then at six months she took isabella to the doctor you know her mother's intuition and we learned that she'd had a, a stroke in the birth and uh she was so like it affected the left, left-hand side of her body from, from her waist down. They told us that she was not going to walk again. And, and for about three weeks, I just went into sort of like feel sorry mode, pity me mode. And it was like, you know, it was like, why us? What, you know, you think you, 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 your child is just going to be born, perfectly helping. And, and I, I couldn't envision a life where my child can walk. And then after three weeks, my wife, my, I came home from work and my wife, my wife, unbelievably, she'd built ramps all over the house. She'd, be, she'd put railings at sort of like baby height and, and, and she'd put toys along these railings. And I said, what the hell are you doing? She went, our baby's going to walk. And so when she started then sort of like sitting up a little bit, these railings were a reference for her to grab hold of and play with the toys and play with the next toys. And then sort of like, we, we we you know went to about three years and she was still not walking and then and then she took her first steps and and I looked back and for a three week period we we were in pity pity me mode and and we went we went for a walk and this this lady said to us this little old lady in Rosendale said that's a gift from God that's a gift from God that child and we couldn't see it and and the gift was is that she was born into a family that could provide that could in, you know invest time and and the financial support that she would get. And when she walked it, she it, it changed our life really. And, uh, and you know, every single day she goes to the physio became part of our life. And, and I started to love the fact that I had a child that was disabled. I'd got out of pity me mode. I'd got out of feeling sorry for me mode. And every time I look at her, I just think, wow, you know, she goes to mainstream school. She's going to mainstream college now in America. She's driving. She's driving, God bless her. And and like she blows me away. And every time I have a, I, every time I lose a game or have a bad moment, I come home and I think, you know, my knee hurts sometimes. And I think, well, my knee hurts. This girl has to have physio everyday of her life. This girl might have to after I'm an operation on her hip to realign her hip. She she goes to school and and she's been to five, six new schools. And for the first six months, all the boys and girls take the Mickey out of her walking style and stuff like that. And she just gets on with it. She just fight, you know, fights through it all. And so she just changed my outlook on life in terms of, you know, not feeling sorry for myself because we lost a game 3-0 or 5-1 or, or I'm tired or I had to work an extra hour. So they were great learning experiences and it was great to see the family, how they dealt with it, you know, and, and it changed their outlook. The one thing we said to our parents is, is when you come to the house, don't treat her, don't treat her like a disabled child. If she's got to, you know, she's to get up them stairs. My mom and my mother-in-law would carry her up the stairs all the time and we forced them to let her walk up the stairs herself, to strengthen her legs, to make her fight for things. And, you know, and yes, yes, you know, she got some help, but it was it was a brilliant period for the whole family to to bring humility to the whole family. And she's my inspiration.
0: What an amazing story.
1: How did How did losing your dad change your life, Phil?
2: I just moved out to Spain. First time I'd ever moved away from home, and, and the process of sort of like me accepting the job and moving out to Spain was probably about three to four weeks. It, it was, it was. Like I got offered the job. I said yes, and then I literally a month, month later, the lab that's never moved out of Barry moved out to Valencia, and it's something that I'd always wanted to do. Like all my life, I'd wanted to sort of like move away and test myself and take me out my comfort zone. So, and I remember going to uh, his office with, with Harvey and Isabella. And literally, we, we, just, it, we just broke down and cried for sort of like, felt like forever. It, you know, obviously, he was sad, he was emotional, but he knew I was following my dreams. I landed in Spain. And a week later, I got a call from my sister saying that he'd, he'd obviously, uh, he was on a life support machine in, in Australia. And we flew out to Australia. We landed, we went to the hospital, Tracy and Gary came, we turned the machine off. And I, I, I expected us to be there for weeks, you know, cause we had to wait for the body to come home. And literally we turned the, we turned the machine off and we got back to the hotel. We went out for something to eat, uh, me and my brother uh, and my sister and my mom. And we had the most incredible special night where we laughed and we cried and stuff. And my mum said at the end of the meal, right, you get your backside back to Spain, you've got a job to do. You get your backside back to Manchester, you've got a job to do. I'll stay out here with, because my sister was in the Commonwealth Games, I think at the time, or the World Championship. I'll stay out here, and, and I'll sort it out. And I'll, like, no, mum, no, I'll stay out here. We'll, we'll go to the coroners, and we'll do this, and we'll do that, and we'll support you. And she literally said, if you do not go home now, I will never speak to you again. So literally that we were in, in Australia for 24 hours. And I was back in I was back in Spain the next day and I was working. And I look back at that period and 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 I'm I sort of like think about why has this happened. And I think to myself, well, he wants us to stand on our own two feet. I always think of things that like God works in mysterious ways. He wanted us to stand on our own two feet. He wanted us to break free because my dad was very much. He was our protector. He would, he would make sure, he, he was a fixer. If you had a problem, you would try and fix it. If you had a problem, you go to dad. And, and it was at that moment I felt as if like, it's time for us all to grow up now. It was time for us all just to sort of like, and, and one thing I thought was to look after mum. Mum was always the one in the background. Mum was always the one that was never center of attention. And uh, it, it, I grew up more, there was times after games in bad periods where you think, oh, I wish I could follow my dad, but, it's that in them moments I probably handled the things better without my dad being there. So it was the only way I could have looked at it, you know. And, and I'd say that every birthday, every Christmas, I shed a tear, I get emotional because those were his moments where he, he was at his best. And uh, you know, before games, you think to yourself, I'd love, I think I'd love to have seen him, you know, be in the stadium when I when I was at the Lionesses at the World Cup, or Harvey makes his debut for into Miami, or Tracy does something, or Baby Nev was born you know, or Gary does something, you know, really special. But, and I know that he gave us a great platform and and my mum, like I said, she she didn't want us to mourn. She didn't want us to be emotional. She didn't want us to be sort of like feeling sorry for ourselves. She just wanted us to get on with our lives and and we have done, Um, you know, but he is missed.
0: Hmm. And obviously, you know, your dad has left a a major legacy alongside with your mum, hasn't he? you know, you've got a fantastic family, and it's, it's great to to observe that grown relationship. Yeah. What do you feel is kind of your role within that dynamic of the family? How do you fit into that? Because you're all, you know, if we're talking about the lobster world, you're all top lobsters, aren't you? So how how yeah. does that work for you?
2: Well, I think I think we do all have a role within our family. I, I'm the youngest one, so I'm. You'd say like sort of like I'm the third in line in terms of sort of like opinions or something like that, but I'd say that. I, I'm not afraid to ask my mum how she is, how she's coping. Tracy's always there with the children. Gary's the one that sort of like the provider always makes sure that, you know, he takes her on holiday. I suppose that we have this sort of like this little bit of a barrier up that I think, uh, me, Tracy, Gary and the family. So it's like, I'll oh, just get on, just, you know, just get up and get on with it type attitude when sometimes my mum shouldn't be allowed to moan. She shouldn't be allowed to talk about my dad. She shouldn't she should be allowed to talk about her feelings about being alone or being on her own. I think, and that's really important. When I was in Australia, there was a lot happening around the time of returning my dad's uh, machine off. But I actually spent the whole time in my mum's room speaking to her about how she felt about what she wanted to do and about you know because everyone was trying to fix her emotions fix how you know, trying to make her happy boss i think my role within this family is to probably see how people are actually feeling trace is going to australia ask gary how his health is is he looking after himself is he eating right is he training right he had a period in his when he finished his career where yeah. he stopped training he started he, he wasn't probably looking after himself from a you know, nutrition point of view. And and, and I, I think I challenged him. I said, look, you need to make yourself look better. You need to eat properly. You need to make it look after your life better. You know, you've got 30 years of your life. So I'd say that I'm probably the, people say the softer one, the more, and the more emotionally connected one, but I feel as if that's an important role in the family. It sounds like you're the caretaker of the family, but what you're
1: saying, Phil, is that you've got empathy and as a coach, I think that's probably the most important quality because, you know, if players know that you care about them, which you do, and you can express that, then you're going to get the best out of them, aren't you?
2: Yeah, I think, I think when I took the, the Lioness job, I, I, think, I think the biggest thing that surprised the players was my emotional intelligence. You know, the, fear, the fact that, you know, Sir Alex could walk into a room and, and he could tell if you was good, bad, or indifferent. But by, by your mood, not, not your performance, your mood. And, and he had this incredible, incredible intelligence, emotional intelligence of, of dealing with every single player differently to their level, to their feelings, to their characters. And, and I studied him. That's the one thing I did study. I studied how he managed people. And I think modern day management, modern day leadership is about the connection with the person, is about the empathy, about the understanding. There's always a reason why people behave in a certain way, whether that's good or bad. And and I feel as if the connection now with the manager, where in the past it should, you know, it was always like managers up here, players below. I think there's more of a level now. I think you've got to be on more of a level. People, people, and players and employees demand that you ask them how they're feeling, how the family are, what what their interests are. You need to know everything about the person to understand the person. And uh, I think that's really important. Phil, I think
1: yeah, you know, thinking about legacy, that that's a, a concrete example of legacy. But I feel like you've left legacies in the world that you don't even know that you've left so uh, an example yeah. is you know when i went back to everton and the people that that were there who knew you from before they still speak about you now and, the, and you had an imprint on them you know young players who are now turning into captains and leaders themselves mm-hmm. so so that that's an ongoing impact that you're going to have for a long time What's your ambition now, Phil? Because I know that when you were a kid, you just wanted to play for Man United and now you're a manager. Yeah. And obviously you had a great result last season by getting into the playoffs. So what yeah. what's your dream now? You know,
2: what? my biggest dream is that I want to work the day i die that that's my that's my biggest ambition (laughs) is that i want to work the day i die and and you know i say to you all the time i rest when i die literally that is what i want to do i never want to never want to wake up in the morning without a purpose without a direction without something to look forward to i'm I'm hopeless in this off season now but you know my wife throws me out the house i'm hopeless uh around around when i've not got a direction so my biggest ambition is to work and enjoy my work for the rest of my life. And to work to the day I die is something that I've always wanted to do. I love new experiences. You know, I, I the next thing I want to do after this adventure is, is to find another adventure. I, I don't see the Premier League as the be all and end all. I just want another adventure with my family doing something that I love. And, and that could be anything. That could be anything. And uh, I want to be the best. I want to be the best coach. I want to work for the biggest clubs. I want the biggest experiences. But it's the enjoyment and creating memories and enjoying my work that are far greater than than saying one day I want to manage Manchester United. Yes, that's a dream, but I'd rather be happy. I'd rather have a challenge. I'd rather wake wake up every morning totally fulfilled in everything that I do. I
0: love that. I sometimes speak to some of my friends and and they're saying, you know, God, I can't wait to retire and you know, looking yeah. forward to be able to put my feet up. And you know what you just said just resonates so much with me that if I am terrified of the thought. Of getting up in a morning without a purpose. Yeah. So you sometimes feel that it's not okay to have an ambition to say that you want to work till the day you die. But I'm glad you just said it because that was actually look, quite I, I liberating. Feel like that's
2: my biggest fear. <laughs> I think I think that's Gary's biggest yeah. fear is is waking up and not having a purpose, not having a direction, not you know I, I I never forget my parents on a Sunday morning. They used to get up and shower, shower as soon as they got up, shower and ready to attack the day. We have this thing attack the day. <sighs> And it was, even if they just came downstairs, they were ready for the day with a purpose. And, you know, we we were very much sort of like a very scheduled family where we'd have an itinerary at the start of every single day on holiday (laughs) and what we would do because it gave us a purpose of, you know, and there's sometimes my wife will say to me, Phil, why don't we just do nothing today on holiday? Why don't we just chill out and and go to a restaurant that we decide half an hour before? And I get start getting like chest pains thinking, oh, I need to know where I'm going. I need to know where I'm going, what I'm doing, what I'm eating. Do you know what I mean? So I'm surprised. I'm surprised you used that word holiday in your family. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, we used to we used to have a pact, me and my wife, when we first started going out, is that the holidays we used to go on, we had to go to cities where there was big football games, big basketball games, or something, so I could go and actually watch something. So but, but she was great. She 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 loved it as well.
1: You've given our listeners so much to learn in in this hour that we've spoken, but is there anything that you'd like to leave them with in terms of you know if they're having any difficulties in their life, how, how
2: to approach it? Well yeah, I, I think and you can only you can only probably uh, relate back to difficult moments that you've had in in your own life and how you dealt with those that you know those situations and, and I'd say that now more than ever. Is that I think I think having support a support network around you is is vitally important, and and that might not always be a mum, a dad, a wife. It, it might be people that you might need to bring in from outside of your family network that give you the support that you will need. Uh, I always think that it's not a magic formula success or to come out of bad moments. It, it, it it's tough, it's brutal, and I, I think hard work. Uh, staying true to yourself is is massively important, and and always having the belief that you know it will t- it will change your look will change. It's not look. It, it, it's that it's that that and accept that throughout your life you're going to have difficult moments. You're going to have difficult moments. I've had difficult moments. My child was born disabled. My my father died at an age where I didn't want him to to die. I had difficult moments in my career. You're going to have difficult moments, and I, I feel as if sort of like the the. It, the world that we live in at this moment in time, I think we've got to prepare our children for those difficult moments and, and it's how you handle those moments. And for me, having a great support network around you is vital. Remaining even keel when you have success and, and failure is even more vital. Don't get too up, don't don't get too down. And... I think working your absolute socks off every single day in everything that you do, doing the simple things every single day to the best of your ability, I feel will bring you success at whatever success that you want to. And I feel as if that's the best advice that I was ever given, is that just do your absolute best every single day. My, my, my nana and granddad owned a corner shop. Financially, they weren't secure, but they worked their socks off every, every single day and they had the most fantastic life. And, and that, that was the, the greatest example that I had in my upbringing is the fact that get up every single day and do your absolute best in everything that you do and, and to remain true to yourself and smile.
0: You said earlier that you'll never be happy with what you achieve and you'll always be striving. But what about happiness? What makes you happy?
2: I love tea time with the, with the kids. And tea time is my favorite part of the day. It's the only time of the day we, we we have a family rule that we have to have one meal a day with everyone at the table. That that was our family rule. Uh, I love tea time, hearing the stories, uh, hearing how they've gone on at school, hearing how Harvey's gone on. It, you know, I know I know I'm his manager in Miami, but he tell he he talks me through how he felt in training. Julie tells me about her day. Uh, we watch, you know, we gossip about things that are happening in the world. Uh, I think I think tea time meal time. But for me is just it's just utopia. It's the it's the it's the best feeling in the world when I get home from work or and we sit down and eat eat tea as a family. And I know it's a simple thing and, and people might laugh, but for me it's it's the best part of the day for me. Uh, you know, And now now that I'm living in Miami, we we have family we have family FaceTime when my mum will call me, then we'll, 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 we'll add Tracy, we'll add Gary, we'll have Molly and Sophie. You know, we, we've got like an army of family now that's growing and, and you laugh, uh, you know, and I suppose that that's the biggest enjoyment that I have is my family. You know, I, I don't have that many friends outside of my family, you know? And uh, Sir Alex Ferguson said to me once, he said, you only need six people. You know, the people that are gonna carry your coffin, they're the only people that you need in your life. And, and, and I think I took it literally, you know. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't have that many friends. I don't want that many friends. I've got acquaintances, I've got colleagues that I like seeing. But, you know, the real friends I have are those that are very, very close to me. You know, Danny is, Danny's one of those friends that, you know, if, if, you know, the friends that are there when you need them, the friends that are always there to support you, the friends that know when to drop you a text, you know, at the moments that you need it. There's always a text come through. Dan Yoga is 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 text comes <laughs> up, and it's always at a moment when you feels that you need to. You know, sometimes we go maybe two, three weeks without speaking. But this, it, it's the although Danny likes voice notes now because he's he's maturing <laughs> in the world. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's those are the real people I think that I hang on to and 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 I value. You know.
1: Well, Philip, it's um, obviously I hope it never happens, but the way you live your life, it might do. Um, I was just thinking when you are speaking about carrying your coffin, there would be no greater honor for me than to do that for you.
2: Thank you, Danny. I hope I live longer than you though, Danny.
0: (laughs) 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 So we put you straight there then, Danny.
1: There's no chance, Lisa, that he's going to live longer than me. I know, I think he's probably about 10 years younger, but the way he lives his life, um, yeah, I'm afraid he's got no chance.
0: It made me laugh. He also, I can really relate to that point about, he says he'll rest when he dies. I mean... That relates to the whole of the family, Gary and, and Tracy. And, and it's funny, I was speaking to Henry Winter this morning, who's the chief football writer um, for The Times, mm-hmm. and told him that um, Phil was next on the podcast. And he obviously had lots of great things to say about Phil. But he also said, you know, he knew his dad, Neville, and he said that work ethic, um, you know, they never switch off. And he said, it's you know, it's true, people like, well, Top Lobster's, they're never going to put the feet up and retire. And everyone we've spoken to on this podcast knows that they have to have a purpose that will actually replace what they're currently doing. So like Phil said, you know, he's going to, he's going to die with his clogs on.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it, it's an amazing thing to hear, Lisa. You know, Phil's achieved so much in his life and we asked him what his ambition is and his ambition is to work every day of his life for the rest of his life. And I, I found it also interesting that he... He looks at Gary and he thinks that Gary works too hard and he wants him to relax and work a little bit less and yet he does exactly the same.
0: Mm. It was interesting, wasn't it, when that really poignant moment where he talks about when his dad died and they went to join Tracy and the mum in Australia and Gary and, and Phil flew over and... It was business as usual i mean as you know the the mum said you need to you're busy you need to go straight back to what you do so you guys go back home he said they were there 24 hours and then he was back and it is that ethic isn't that discipline you know the show goes on
1: yeah and i think from this interview i think that phil has got that work ethic and the other interesting point was that he was there for his mum in that moment and, you know, he's really empathetic. And I think he speaks about in his own leadership now as as a coach of Inter Miami, how he uses that empathy to encourage and, and help his players. And even when Phil was a player at Everton, he was always a coach. He was always helping younger players, helping the players around him. Lisa, um, Phil mentions his daughter Isabella as well and the impact that she's had on him and their family. And also it goes both ways, doesn't it? So the impact that Phil had on her and Isabella has become a huge inspiration for Phil because her attitude has just been incredible throughout.
0: Yeah. It was so lovely. The story told about Julie putting the toys on the, um, on the rail so that she could try and reach for them. And also that tough, tough love, you know, with the, with, his mum and his mum-in-law to say don't carry her She can't she's got to she's, she'll do this by herself and I thought it's really lovely that uh, again applying the discipline but also deep love and um, yeah I mean, and also as we know you know top lobsters what you think that you know from the outside they've got it all all great it's all shiny all rosy and it's not you know they've had a really really difficult and challenging and very upsetting time, you know, with a with a baby that needed a lot of help. And, you know, but it's it's become central to the life, hasn't it? And it's, it's, you know, you can hear when Phil talks about her how much she has inspired him. Yeah. He says, he's taken a leaf out of Sir Alex Ferguson's book, hasn't he? When he talks about, he was laughing about you carrying or not carrying his coffin. But, um, you know, you only need six people to carry your coffin. And he says that his circle is very small but what is apparent because you've I've seen a couple of the LinkedIn posts that you've done it's clear that so many people love him so even though he may only think he's got a small group of people around him there's a much bigger group of people who are massively in his fan club for how he's impacted their lives.
1: Yeah I think uh, you'll you'll never know the impact that he's had in his life Lisa because as I say there's there's hundreds of players who is impacted and they're just going to impact more and more players as time goes on.
0: Another thing that comes across when we speak to very successful people is they're very clear on who they want around them and they have those boundaries in place. So they don't have the liggers, they don't have people who are there. I think it was Tim Howard said that a lot of footballers potentially or successful people, if you go and take them to Harvey Nichols and Selfridges and then buying them stuff, they're going to hang around but um, he was really, really clear about that when he went to into Miami, I think he sacked about 19 players because they just didn't have the right attitude. So that culture is so much more important than actual technical ability. You can teach to some degree, you'd rather sacrifice some technical ability to get the right attitude. Um, and he's, I love the expression, you know, are you on the bus or off the bus? We say that in our office. And you know when someone's not on your bus, and the longer you keep them on the bus, the more damage it's going to do to your culture. So he's really clear on that.
1: Yeah, again, I think it's a legacy from Manchester United, the culture that he experienced there. And he brought a bit of that to Everton and Everton already had its own culture. But I think the the thing that sticks with me as well about what Phil spoke about and, and culture was the fact that you do the simple things well and you turn up every day and you and you keep doing the simple things well. And Phil said that Ronaldo is better than everybody else because he does the simple things better than every other player. And, you know, people think there's this magic uh, solution to being a great player or great leader. And it actually comes down to that simple rule of, you know, committing and doing the simple things well every day of your life. And it's something that Phil has done really well.
0: Completely agree. And, um, it is the, it's the tiny things. I mean, being a top lobster is, is being prepared to do all those tiny, mundane things every day, the minutiae. I mean, John Amici, who I love, he he talks about we can all be leaders because leadership is about doing the tiny things and anyone can actually do the small things really well.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of Lobster Brain.
0: Lobster Brain will be back on the 30th of March with Danny's dad, Willie Donerkey. It was an utter privilege for us to sit with Danny's dad and I've worked with Danny for seven years and he's told me a lot about his dad and I was really really excited to meet him and we recorded this quite some time actually it was the first podcast we recorded and I hadn't listened to it for five months and I was listening to it in Selfridges at the weekend and I was in proper tears so that's how powerful this is and I can't wait for you to hear it.
1: In the meantime, please remember to share and follow. See you next time.